Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Faultline podcast. Today, I got the opportunity to sit down with Giuseppe Capalupo, who's best known for his drumming work with Devil Wears Prada. Uh, but he's also a dedicated multi-instrumentalist, and uh, he's a real student of the craft of music. Uh, he talks us through his early musical life, how he came to link up with the guys from Prada, and we also talk about the last record they put out, um, The Act. Uh, this one was a lot of fun, and I just want to thank Giuseppe again for giving up his time to talk to us, and hope everyone enjoys it. Cheers. Hey, man. Hey, cheers, man. Can you, can you hear me? I can. I can. Hey. <laughs> Perfect. What's going on, man? How are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. How about yourself? Good, 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 good. Sorry, I'm a few moments late. I was oh, no having worries. some technological issues. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> one good thing and one bad thing about the technology, right? You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sometimes when it's spot on, it's incredible. When it's yeah. faulty, it's like, mm, yeah, <laughs> not so much. Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. Um, so, yeah, well. First of all, thanks very much for um for agreeing to have this chat today. Um, yeah, thanks for absolutely. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for keeping me in mind, brother. Yeah, no worries, man. Um, speaking of time, uh, we've all kind of got a lot of time on our hands nowadays. Well, I don't want to assume anything, but um, personally, I've got a lot of time on my on my hands. Um, yeah, I just want to know, like, how have you been spending it? Like uh, <laughs> during the lockdown, what's been going on? Oh man, I mean. It's, it's been kind of a wild ride because like I have ADHD, so naturally I have a very difficult time sitting still, um, especially as a drummer. So normally that comes as a benefit, but it's good, you right? know, during quarantine times, it was kind of difficult because I'm like, oh my God, like I'm not used to having this much free time because, you know, I'm either, you know, working full time at the bar or I'm on tour. So it's kind of a very, very bizarre shaken up like adjustment period. Um but I started getting into like the bare bones of like uh, motion graphics animation and stuff like that uh, last Jan- uh, January of 2020 because I, w- I got fascinated with like tour visuals and stuff like that for a lot of artists that, you know, bring up like big video and like LED walls and stuff behind them. And I was just curious as to like what makes that stuff work and who de- like who designs all the visuals and stuff like that. So I was I just started kind of peeking in that rabbit hole and found some free open source software uh, called Blender, uh, which is like an all-encompassing uh, like motion graphics animation software that's 100% free, open source. Um, it's for Mac, PC, Linux systems, pretty much anything. Uh, and you can do some pretty wild stuff with it. There's a couple, uh, well, I mean, I have hundreds of YouTube tutorial hours watched now <laughs> because yeah. of all that spare time. Um, and I'm a bit of a completionist too. So naturally I had to like lift every rock to see what fun treasures I could find under it. Um, yeah, I spent a lot of time in that almost to an unhealthy degree. Um, cause the rehearsal space that I have here in, in Pittsburgh had shut down initially when quarantine happened. So I couldn't really play drums. You know, they had, there was like an entire month when quarantine first started here in PA that you know my whole rehearsal space went on full lockdown they weren't letting anybody in uh to like get their gear to take home because they they were trying to like immediately mitigate the virus as best as possible so like the rehearsal the owners of the rehearsal space it's like a big storage unit they're just like not nobody in or out you know for a month until we figure out you know learn more about this thing figure out what it is um so as a drummer naturally i'm like oh that sucks considering i literally just got home from tour and i was expecting to be gone seven months uh out of 2020 you know on the road 
you know, we were supposed to go back to UK, which is a big bummer because, you know, yeah. I have a, a lot of pals over there that I, I would love to see again soon and spend some time with, you know, but yeah, for sure. Man. Yes, yeah. It was, yeah. It was, it was, it's, it's tricky, but you know, a lot of video gaming too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it kind of sounds like you haven't, um, let that creativity go to waste in terms of, you know, spending your time wisely. I mean, you know, uh, that sounds like you've built kind of a new skill from the ground up that video stuff um that's great man yeah i'm just wondering about the um the music side as well you know obviously musicians like yourself not being able to play live not being able to get out and even like rehearse in some cases that's that's kind of bad right um but yeah. has that kind of slowed you down musically uh do you think or have you been able it, to you know? it honest it honestly did i mean for me i definitely kind of fell into like a bit of a depressive slump because I mean, not, none of us musicians really had any clue when we we're able to get back to work. You know, a lot of us still don't, you know, as far as, you know, touring or getting back to the studio. I mean, thankfully, with a lot of the downtime, you know, a lot of a lot of artists have been able to put in studio time or at least, you know, start exchanging ideas, you know, demo some new material and, you know, start pre-production for new records and stuff like that. Um, so in the early stages of quarantine, you know, I really didn't do anything musically at all because, you know, I was just kind of heartbroken and kind of uninspired because I'm just like, I have, I have no end game right now. You know, I don't have a goal that I'm working to, you know, I, I, I'm not getting ready for a tour, you know, I'm not get re getting ready for studio time. So for me, I just kind of like stepped away from, from music for a second. Um, you know, I really didn't start diving back into, you know, writing anything until, shoot probably like uh, probably like april because we got home um i think yeah we got i got home from tour on the i think it was the 12th of march because the last show we had played uh, that prada had played was march 10th in montreal and we had an off day the 11th in albany new york and that was when the news broke nationally here in the states that you know coronavirus was here and things were starting to shut down uh the 12th of march we had a show in uh worcester massachusetts right outside of boston because we were out uh, as direct support for we came as romans um on their uh, to plant a seed 10 year anniversary i think it was for that record um so that day we get to the venue that morning on uh, and we came as romans had already sound checked already built the stage and already set up all their gear and the promoter before we could even unload our trailer was like we're calling it, calling it quits for today boys yeah. so initially like jeremy uh from prada he's kind of like our acting tour manager these days he was on the phone with management and booking for like damn near 12 hours straight it felt like just trying to logistically figure out what was happening what was possible because, you know, we have a full band and crew now that they start, they have to very quickly start figuring out how to get everybody home, how to get the gear back to where it lives when we're not on tour, you know, how to, you know, it was a logistical nightmare because they had a very short window of time to make all these executive decisions and, you know, figure out, you know, the future of the band for at least for that interim period of time. Um, and that day, you know, we had plans on finishing out like the next week of shows before hanging it up. Um, but a couple hours later into the morning of March 12th, um, you know, management and the booking agency 
you know, Live Nation, AEG had decided like, you know, for the safety of crew and personnel, all tours are going on pause for now. So literally that day they drove me from the the bandwagon, drove me from Boston all the way back to Pittsburgh, which is like a 13 hour drive. Um, yeah, that's so not that, a short, a short journey. <laughs> no, nah, so that was a, that was a very long, a very sad journey. Cause I mean, at the time that was the last that I thought I was going to see my boys for, I, none of us knew how long, you know, at first, you know, we had high hopes, you know, maybe just a couple months, you know, until we figure this thing out. But I mean, we all know how the United States has kind of been the laughing stock of the globe now for a while, as far as how they've handled everything due to the people in power over here. So that's no new news. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's definitely no new news as far as how I feel about the whole thing, because, uh, everything was mismanaged. You know, my country is very divided as far as people that believe in science and want to follow the uh, CDC guidelines as far as what this thing is. Um, so for me, like it was honestly a very laughable thing to be an American for this past year because everything got politicized, uh, everything it, rather than like, trying to unite under a common front, you know, with the world health organization, our ex now thank God ex president was <laughs> like, no, we're going to pull out from the world world health organization because that's a smart thing to do. Meanwhile, you have places like New Zealand and Taiwan who have had the best vir uh, viral mitigation efforts. And now, you know, New Zealand is having full scale concerts again. Taiwan's having these massive events because they have so few cases and they did everything right. You know, and immediately when things started happening, they shut everything down on a national level and said, no, nobody in or out. Everybody stays home. Where over here, a lot of my, my fellow uh, country folks are like, no, you can't tell me what to do, taking away our freedom, yada, yada, yada. It's like, yo, it's totally fine to have pride in your country. But at what point do you draw that fine line and say, how do we look at the greater good for the bigger picture of this whole thing and help everybody out here? It just became, no, we're just going to put that on the back burner and try and continue business as normal. And now, you know, we're over, I don't remember exactly what the numbers are here now, but it's egregious at best yeah it's pretty high man and uh yeah i mean you know speaking as well from the uk you know our situation is you know it's kind of like america kind of scaled down a bit um you know not not wanting to open too much of a can of political worms but like yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the mismanagement on our side of the pond has been pretty terrible and you look in retrospect at places like you know australia and new zealand that seemed like pretty heavy-handed to start with right the kind of things they were introducing but you know what actually like 13, 14 months down the line, they're back to normal and we're still yeah. knee deep in it. So, yeah, yeah there is hindsight, hindsight's always 2020, right? Yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, yeah. Pun, pun intended now. Yeah. <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, and, and a broad spectrum, I mean, yeah, like, because I, I don't want to, you know, speak for everybody, you know, from the, from an American standpoint, because you know, I'm just over here trying to live my life the best I know how. And, you know, my, my comfy little flat with my darling wife, my puppies and my kitty and trying to find any silver lining and small enjoyments that I can. And, you know, thankfully I have, you know, an awesome family here. Uh, and we, my wife and I have found, you know, little ways to kind of stay busy, stay somewhat creative and stay sane, you know, cause that was, you know, mental health is a big thing with, you know, the isolation of quarantine and a lot of that, you know, especially for, you know, entertainers um, and artists and stuff that, 
as entertainers and artists on every broad spectrum, you already had to be very creative with monetizing your art. So then with quarantine and, you know, especially for folks like my wife and I, who are, you know, uh, career artists, you know, she's a wedding photographer full-time. How do you, you're already creative with monetizing your art. And then something like a global pandemic happens and now you have to get even more creative and pivot to keep your bills paid. It was, it was very, you know, disheartening and frustrating at first. Um, but I guess the one, the one key takeaway from, you know, this past year was watching a lot of communities of artists and, you know, uh, service industry folks, since, you know, I work in the service industry and I'm not on tour as a bartender, um, a lot of communities came together to help each other out. So there was a lot of, a lot of unity and a lot of solidarity with a, uh, a lot of different communities. And that was a really cool thing to see, you know, and it's still happening today, considering there's still a lot of people struggling because of this thing, you know, financially, uh, economically, and psychologically. Um, but we definitely, we, we made it through 2020. So I feel like the heavy, yeah. the heavy lifting was done. Yep. For sure, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I'm just kind of hoping, you know, six, seven months, you know, down the line, we're going to be in a, a much, uh, a much more amenable position. Absolutely, I definitely have, yeah. I definitely have high hopes for the for the future of this yeah. year for sure. We're definitely on the right path. Yeah. Um, it's it's a little a little sad and a little disheartening how many sacrifices were made to get to this point. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, let's jump away from the present uh, ever so briefly yes. and delve a little bit into your past because uh, yeah, we're very interested to find out uh, from musicians and from you uh, what. In, in, in the broadest sense possible, you know, what was your earliest um, introduction to music? And, uh, you know, how, how do you think that was like formative? And, you know, how did that kind of set you off on the path that you're um, that you find yourself on now? So I'll have to share the story from kind of a third person perspective, because I don't really have a large memory of it. But from what my parents tell me, uh, I was, I think, seven or eight years old, even younger than that. There, I, I remember seeing a VHS tape. Um, of me sitting on my gut, like up on my godfather's shoulders when I was like a toddler at, uh, there's, there's, um, a club here in Pittsburgh called the Calabria club. Cause my dad's a Calabrian Italian immigrant born and raised. Um, so there's a, there's a bunch of different, you know, cultural clubs here in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's a pretty big immigrant community. Uh, we have a lot of Polish, a lot of Italian, um, you know, some Eastern European, uh, but because of the very diverse, uh, you know, socioeconomical um, vibes here in Pittsburgh, where there's a lot, a large uh, technology hub here. Uh, this used to be a very large steel export town. Uh, I mean, that's why it's known as the Steel City you know, for such a long time, well before I was even a thought. Um, so there was a lot of immigrants here, but my father and my family is part of this club called the Calabria Club. So it's all of the Italian, uh, Calabrian Italian immigrants of, of Pittsburgh and the surrounding tri-state area get together to celebrate all the feasts of the patron saints and preserve a lot of the Calabrian traditions. So here I am, like three or four years old. I was a kiddo up on my, my godfather's shoulders with a microphone singing uh, uh, this, song, this traditional Abruzzo folk song called uh, Regina la Campagnola. 
three or four years old, like singing every word of this song in front of, you know, a couple hundred Italian immigrants uh, that are, you know, some of my, my family and some of my father's, you know, family friends. Because uh, he, he emigrated here via Ellis Island and I think it was 1956. Um, so I have a VHS of little me with a microphone up on my godfather's shoulders singing Regine la Campagnola as a kid. Uh, and then fast forward a couple years to when I was six or seven, every Christmas Eve, we would have uh, La Festa de Sette Pesce, which is the Feast of the Seven Fish. Uh, it's a Southern Italian Christmas Eve tradition. And at my aunt's house, my dad's older sister, they had like a secondary living room because it was kind of like a different tiered kind of like little ranch style house. So there was like the main living room was on a lower level and there was a set of stairs to like the secondary level and another set of stairs to like the living room or the bedrooms and such. So in the mid level, the mezzanine, if you will, there was a little uh, living, another living room that just had a couch TV and a little keyboard in there. And I would sneak away from like the, the party on the lower, uh, the lower living room go up to the keyboard, turn on the radio at like six or seven years old and try and emulate anything that would come on the radio on the keyboard. Well, my mom followed me one time, me not knowing she was there. And she's like, you're just listening to things on the radio and playing them note for note at like six or seven years old. So it was then that my parents bought me a keyboard and enrolled me in piano lessons. That's smart because that's <laughs> that's the best thing to do, right? Because you clearly showed natural aptitude so yeah sorry <laughs> yeah so I, I took uh, I took classical piano lessons for about three years and I was really into it at first um, for piano lessons because you know I was fascinated by piano and keyboard and I'm literally sitting in front of one right now um, but that was that was my gateway you know because from piano lessons like I didn't really have a lot of fun reading other people's compositions because I was like, I just want to, I want to make my own music. You know, even young me was like, I just want to write my own tunes, you know, like, like playing these songs is cool and all, but like, I want to learn how to write my own songs. So after about three years of piano lessons, I kind of like stepped back from that and kind of like lost interest in classical piano lessons. So the, to the instructor I had, I mean, she was great. You know, she was a wonderful pianist, um, but definitely very old school, very like classical, not, not as contemporary as I wanted. So, but you know, she taught me proper form. I learned how to sight read, you know, I learned how to sh read sheet music. And that gave me like the bare bones basics of music theory that I could then later apply to, you know, the stuff that I'm doing now. Uh, so that was super, super, super important looking back on it, you know, now as a 33 year old young man. Um, but funny enough, uh, a few years after my parents had bought me a keyboard, my dad goes and buys an electric guitar. So I'm like, cooking. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, oh, okay, this is this is a cool thing too. Yeah. And around the time that like guitar tabs started to be a thing. Right, right. Because I'm like, well, I don't know like how scales work on a guitar. There's all these the I like there's frets, you know, at the time yeah. I didn't know what the, what the hell a fret was. I'm like, there's these weird little bars, and then there's these <laughs> dot inlays and the fretboard. Yeah. Fun word, fretboard. I'm like, all right, so so we're and at first I like I would only play with like my index and my middle finger for like a very long time when I'm riffing, you know, I didn't really know to like mm. use my thumb and use my, my fourth finger and my, or my ring finger and my pinky finger as well when you're riffing on guitar. But I was like, I was a small dude, you know, still at 33, I'm only five foot four, you know, 120 pounds, you know, my hands are pretty average for like my height and size, but 
back then there's this like wide like uh looked like a uh, fender stratocaster but it was like a knockoff strat guitar so like i couldn't get like my thumb around that big ass <laughs> fretboard i had these tiny little kid hands so you know i made do just riffing with my uh my index and my middle finger, you know, and still to like 2011, cause I never took guitar lessons. I would just watch YouTube videos and, you know, just kind of figure it out myself. Um, fast forward to, I think I was in fourth grade. My parents bought my older brother, a drum kit, like a full on drum kit. And he never touched the thing. I mean, he would like, he was real stoked at first. And, you know, the first couple of weeks of having it, he'd be down there grooving along when he wasn't down there. I would sneak down, put on headphones, <laughs> turn on the radio yeah. and be like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure this out. And it became such a thing where it was similar to the piano, the piano story where I started having kind of like a natural uh, gift for rhythm. You know, I still had a ways to learn, but the integral framework of having the music theory from piano lessons was already there. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to figure out how to use my kick drum. Then I'm going to figure out my right hand with my right foot. Now I'm going to add the left hand in, see if I can get this. And, you know, sure as pigs could fly, I was playing basic beats within, you know, two, two or three weeks. So my mom's like, okay, now I got to guess we, I guess we got to get him drum lessons now too. So, <laughs> I started, uh, I started taking drum lessons, um, not till middle school, um, because my older brother was, was taking lessons it, when he was getting to middle school, because the way that the school system worked for us in our school district, uh, it was first grade through fifth grade at the elementary school. Uh, the kindergarten and preschool was a whole separate, uh, separate building at a different location. And then the middle school was uh, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade which was another building. And then high school was nine through 12. So a lot of traveling around throughout the school system here, but all the schools are super close by. Um, that's the cool thing about Pittsburgh. It's a very small city. So the commutes really are not that bad at all. Although the traffic can be a bit of a bear sometimes. I digress. So uh, I started I started taking drum lessons and started really learning like drum theory because the, the drum instructor, his name was Brian Burchock that I was taking lessons from, he was very insistent upon learning the rudiments before we would sit at the kit. So the, the rule with him was we would do a half hour on the practice pad, you know, learning rudiments. And when we made it through those exercises, then we would sit down at the drum kit and start applying those. So it's just like little chunk by little chunk started adding things in. And only after I only took a couple months of lessons from him because uh, I guess his normal, his normal day job, uh, had changed um, or he had like resigned or something was looking for a new job. So he had to stop giving lessons, which was super unfortunate because that dude gave me like the foundation for just keeping that pocket super deep, staying locked into a metronome and taught me a lot of the basics of like, you know, marching percussion because I was about to go to high school, you know, and I wanted to be in drumline, which, you know, drumline, like marching techniques, it's whole, it's a whole nother world of like theory and, you know, posture, you know, sticking a whole different style of technique. The, the grip is completely. Yeah. Backwards, yeah. Thank, but, yeah. Well, thank, thankfully, you know, the, the high school drumline I marched with, you know, we played match grip. So we just played regular, right. you know, hand over hand. We didn't play uh, traditional. Yeah. So, I mean, I learned a little bit of traditional over the years, thankfully, just cause it was like a cool thing to, 
it's like being ambidextrous, you know, as a drummer. Right. So granted, still trying to find that sweet spot with rim shots, playing mm-hmm. traditional. That's a difficult thing. That's a difficult thing. Um, there's a drummer I watch a lot. He's an, an older gentleman named Steve Smith. He's great. Uh, if you ever look up uh, uh, Victor Wooten and Steve Smith duet, look that up because it is, it's a funky little improvisational collab that they did at some like music conference many years ago now. But that... That you'll see a that dude. Sounds good, play. man. Yeah, that that Victor Wooden guy. He's like cool. he's on another level already. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, those two yeah. together. Cool. Yeah, I'm a I'm a sucker for a solid bassist and Victor oh, yeah. Wooden for man. sure, he's, man. Yeah, that's kind of the bread and butter, real. right? Yeah, Drummer. give me that give me that rhythm section, baby. Give yeah, me that rhythm yeah. section. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. So like after you know after high school and you know I did all the jazz band, did the drumline thing. Um, around my, my senior year, I started playing with some, you know, aggressive metal bands. And that was kind of, that was where that rabbit hole opened into a wormhole. And I just went straight through the galaxies. <laughs> um, I started touring with a, a Southern metal hardcore band called Once Nothing, uh, which based out of here in Pittsburgh around, uh, and we re- released a bunch of EPs. And then we did a full length uh, in 2008, we released a full length with Solid State Records. And that was kind of my entry point into, you know, like professional, like career musician, uh, musicianship. Uh, and we, t- you know, with Once Nothing, I toured with them from 2005 until uh, I think it was early 2009 when we decided to, you know, dissolve the band and like hang it up. Because uh, a lot of the guys, you know, had some other aspirations that they wanted to chase after and uh, just had some had some other plans. And I guess Universe had some other plans as well. So we had disbanded amicably, of course. Um, and a few months later, I get a call for, do you know, do you remember Haste the Day? Uh, yes. Yeah, man. So this was the other project that you were called on yeah. to, be, to be part of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the A&R for Once Nothing, my first touring band, was uh his name was chad johnson when jimmy ryan left haste the day he left haste the day to go work as an artist representative for tooth and nail so he was the assistant a and r for my pittsburgh band and when he found out that we were disbanding i guess uh the original drummer for haste the day devin chalk was going back to seminary school and jamie calls me one day he's like hey like i know you're young and you still have all these aspirations you know tour as a drummer He's like, now that you have all these years of experience, you know, Haste the Day is looking for a drummer if you want to come audition. I was like, uh, yeah, let's go. <laughs> like, yes, please, let's go. Um, and, you know, that was a that was unreal. Like, I, lo- I love all those dudes to pieces. You know, it's it's incredible to see, you know, everybody like living their adult lives now that, you know, Haste had disbanded. Um, and the reason that Haste disbanded uh, – you know, Brennan, uh, Brennan, t- Brennan t- Chalk took leave. Um, and that was Mike, uh, Mike Murphy, the bassist's best friend. You know, they had been in that band since like high school together. So all their formative years had been spent together. So when Brennan took leave, Mike was like, dude, like I'm the last guy. He's like, if we don't hang it up now, you know, with dignity and respect and, you know, just like let it, let it be and let it rest. He's like, we're going to hate each other by the end of this. If we try and keep pushing forward, keep pushing forward. And, you know, in one, one side of the coin, I feel like he was right. You know, I'm glad that we, I'm glad that we ended it when we did, because now everybody's everybody from the band are doing all these incredible things. You know, Stephen Keach, uh, the vocalist that came after Jimmy Ryan, you know, he's a, a very accomplished composer uh, for Soundstripe in Asheville. And he's got a beautiful family now. Um, 
uh, Dave Kriesel, the uh, the newer guitarist uh, who took Jason Barnes' spot. Uh, he is a co-owner of an uh, app called Spec that's built out for bartenders. So he's a bit of an entrepreneur making some big moves. He lives in Denver now. Um, Mike Murphy works for FedEx and he's killing it. He's got himself a beautiful family, a beautiful house uh, in Northern Indianapolis. Um, who am I missing right now? Uh, Scotty Whalen, one of my favorite, one of my favorite guitarists, uh, ex Phineas. We, we, yeah kindly poached him from Phineas to join Haze today. Um, uh, he's a music therapist and I think he's actually going back to school to get either his master's or his doctorate, but brilliant guy, incredibly talented musician. Um, so every, everybody from the band are doing these incredible things, you know, and continuing on with their legacies and their lives. And that's honestly, there's nothing more beautiful than that to see people you care about, good people succeed and doing stuff that they love. So after Haste uh, had hung it up in 2000, uh, 2000, late 2010, early 2011, I think March, March of 2011 was the final Haste Today show. Um, I had a couple offers from other, other groups, you know, join and, and uh, you know, go, to, go on tour, et cetera, et cetera. But nothing was really lining up like I wanted it to or that had, I had expected it to. Um, and I kind of fell into bartending here in Pittsburgh because it was a parallel to the music industry where you have that sense of community. You have that sense of the social outing, you know, that performance, if you will, that performance art. And I needed, I don't necessarily think that I needed a break from touring per se, but I needed to explore a contingency plan because I knew the music industry is a very fleeting thing. I mean, this past year had proved that, you know, just like that, the, the, um, that lifestyle can be gone. So I just wanted to make sure that I had, you know, some sort of a backup plan since I wasn't exactly a man of academia. Um, so, you know, bartending in the service industry provided that for me and it was an, it's been an incredible ride. You know, I still bartend to this day and I have some of my closest friends because of the service industry because it's so tight knit. Everybody really looks after each other because it's a very grueling job. You know, you're dealing with, you know, great guests and some unruly guests yeah, day in, day out. Great guests. Yeah. And every day, every day is a new thing. Every day is a new adventure. So it's very similar to tour life. Um, you know, it can be very mentally and physically strenuous. Um, and that's why it was such an easy transition. So I started bartending, you know, and I started up a local band here in Pittsburgh where I was singing and playing guitar uh, with some of my close uh, childhood pals. Uh, it was like kind of like Americana, like folk punk rock and roll kind of stuff. It's like whiskey drink, whiskey drink and foot stomping kind of stuff. And we were at, we ran that for a few years and it was fun. We just, you know, played locally. We released an EP and it was great. I'm not a good front man um, or ba like band manager, if you will. But that was like a nice peek under the hood of that lifestyle, you know, trying to organize musicians and schedule rehearsals, you know, schedule studio time. Uh, and it was a lot to take on. I wasn't physically or mentally prepared for that. But, we, you know, we had a lot of fun. We played some incredible shows. And still to this day, the guys from that band are still like my, some of my closest, closest ride or die pals. We still talk all the time. And we all live pretty close by as well. Um, so, and well, in 2011, I met my now wife. So I'm very happy that I took that break when I did, because if I stayed on the road, I wouldn't now be married to the most incredible woman I've ever fucking met. So very happy that I did take that break um, because she's, I couldn't picture life without her, really couldn't. 
And it's because of my wife that she's super supportive in me, you know, touring again with Prada. So fast forward the bartending clock to 2016, two weeks before my wedding, I get a call from Mike Ranica, the vocalist of Prada. And a short, short backstory as far as me joining Prada, um, when I was with my first band, Once Nothing, we were touring before social media was a thing. Like we used to have to call promoters from a payphone. Like I'm talking old school, like I'm starting to date myself now. <laughs> Carbon date, BC, let's go. Um, so we, we became close pal. My, my old band wants nothing. We became close pals with the Prada camp because they were originally from Dayton, Ohio, which is only about five and a half, six hour drive from Pittsburgh. I'm sorry, four and a half, four and a half hours, six hours to Indianapolis when I had to commute for the haste today times. Um, so we would show swap all the time because there were these forum boards online. You know, there was like fear.com was one, HXCMP3. There were just like these websites for local bands to be able to network with each other and, you know, swap shows. So we would swap shows with Prada. The first time we played with Prada uh, was this place called The Post in Goshen, Indiana. And I mean, they were just like going apeshit on stage. They were wild. Their live performance was great. They were insane high energy and we just like kind of fell in and became buddies with them and we started you know swapping shows back and forth between pittsburgh and dayton and just like other random one-offs whenever we were on tour and they just kept in contact with us over the years you know even when they like massively blew up when they would come through pittsburgh they would still hit up hit us up even after the band uh, our band had disbanded like yo hey we're coming through in a, in a couple weeks if you guys want tickets just let us know we'd love to have like have you on come hang so we had just remained, you know, pa uh, pals of those guys for a long time. So 2016 rolls around, too busy for our wedding, you know, and Mike Ranica gives me a call. And normally, you know, like every once in a while, we'll all just like text back and forth. But I hadn't, Mike and I don't really like actively talk on the phone all the time. So I was very surprised to see him calling me. I'm like, I wonder what's up if he's calling me on the phone. But not, I, I had an inkling of what it was. He's like, you know, hey, man, how you doing? How you been? I was like, you know, good, you know, just finishing up some last minute wedding planning because I'm getting hitched in two weeks and I uh, still working at the bar, riding my motorcycle, you know, just doing normal Pittsburgh kid things. He's like, uh, what are you up to like this coming week? I was like, you know, the same working, yeah. Um, yeah. planning a wedding, planning the wedding. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, and he's like, we're, we're kind of in a tight spot. Um, we could really use your services. Uh, and immediately I'm just like, uh, fuck, what did, what did Danny do? The original drummer. Um, what did he do? He was like, I'll tell you about it. I'll tell you about it. If you come up here, uh, long story short, he quit the band in the middle of recording a record and the drums weren't even fully finished. So they were gonna, they had to completely start over with all the drum tracking. And I was one of their first calls. I'm like, Oh my God, you know, I haven't really played metal drums now in a minute. I don't know if I still have the ability to play this kind of stuff. It's been a while. I'm a little out of shape as far as metal drumming standards are concerned. So I was like, tell you, I'll tell you what, let me, let me ask my very soon to be wife. If this is even cool before you send me the record for me to listen to. And I said, you know, Hey, Alyssa, like is, I just got the opportunity to go drum on this record. Is that something that you're okay with? And she's like, at this point, she just wanted the space to like finish all the wedding details and stuff because she's in the wedding industry. So she knew exactly what she wanted and how everything wanted to be done. 
and I didn't, I didn't want to get in the way. So <laughs> she was like, she, "Oh, with a heavy heart, I'll send you away for two weeks." But she was actually yeah. just like, "This content, just like yes, yeah." Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, like, I'm sure my nerves and my ADHD tendencies definitely didn't help de-stress what the stress of wedding planning is. Yeah. So you know, I was just trying to do the best of what I thought was like helping out, but <laughs> sometimes I. More more often than not, I can be a bit of a hindrance because how I think something should be done is not always the right way. I'm very like crude about my methods of like, oh, they were just gonna like hammer this nail in here. We're not gonna <laughs> measure. We're just gonna eyeball. It's gonna be totally fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. So I said, yeah, you know, it's cool with her. Uh, send me the record. Let me listen. I'll go to my rehearsal space, listen to it a couple times, see if this is something I can actually physically do before I say yay or nay. But I'll call you back in an hour. So he sends me the record. I listen to it. You know, I start chopping around on my drum set a little bit. I'm like, all right, you know, I think, I think this is something I can handle. You know, it's pretty straightforward. It's, it's not too complicated, but there's, you know, there's room for me to bring some creative elements to the table. If you guys are open to any ideas that um, I, I can bring or you know, we can try some stuff in the studio. I know you guys are in a time crunch, but I'll sketch out some ideas and we'll see what, we'll see what happens. So I did a couple passes. I think I like, you know, like recorded just like a couple little audio snippets to send them so they could have a reference to be like, okay, yeah, he did, he's, this is our, this is our guy. He could, he'll be able to handle it. So I get to Long Island and naturally I was very nervous because not only are these old friends of mine, but um, two of the guys in the band, I, uh, Kyle and John, they were newer members. So I didn't really know them that well. You know, I didn't know them very personally it's just they were going off of the word of the the original founding members that yo this giuseppe dude's a hell of a player he can handle it so i was a little a little overwhelmed because a i hadn't played metal drums in a long time but not only do i now have to prove my friends right Mm -hmm. i have to show these these newer members that like i can do exactly what they hired me to do they gave me fi- uh, they gave me five days to track, and I got the record done in a day and a half. And that f- that for me, I felt super accomplished, and it was nerve wracking. Beca- but I think because of like the adrenaline and the excitement yeah. of get getting a second chance to you know be a part of the music industry, I think that was like the big fuel that got me got me through that part, and just like a breath of fresh air, and also just like kind of a big sigh of relief. It's like okay. Metal drumming is kind of like riding a bicycle. You just need like two or three days of rehearsal before getting back on that bicycle. Now that's amazing, man. Because, uh, you know, obviously, you know, when someone's brought into a band to kind of like, uh, I don't want to say fill in a spot because that sounds disparaging, but, you know, you were kind of brought in as a, as a replacement. And, you know, when you kind of enter that environment, maybe people already have an idea of what they want doing. And, you know, they just kind of, you sit there and play this. But it sounds like you just kind of built those tracks from the ground up. So, like, it, it was like you were, you know, it's all your original um, content, right? Which is pretty cool. Yeah. And that was the really cool part and also a challenge for me, uh, the key player for the group, John, he's actually a full-on, like, professional producer. Um, so, naturally, I was extremely nervous working with him because even as a younger guy, he's a very accomplished producer, and a songwriter and he's worked with a bunch of different 
uh, like pretty large artists. So I was already nervous about working with him because I know he's this kid genius. And it's like, I know I'm a couple years older than him and also a multi-instrumentalist, but this dude has done very accomplished things. So he's somebody that I look up to. So I've really, really felt the pressure, you know, being in a room with him and, you know, hearing his input, considering he's actually a primary writer for the band. Um, so a lot of the newer stuff that Proud has done, what he what we do is he kind of sketches out like the uh, skeletal structure, integral framework for the drum parts. And then I just kind of go in and put the sauce on it, fill in all the gaps for like the drum parts and stuff. So it's kind of like a co-writing, um, co-writing the drums with him which is cool because he'll get, he'll like lock himself in his, in his home studio for, you know, a month and come out with a bunch of finished demos and then be like, all right, let's translate this to full band Prada and see what happens, you know, between he and Kyle and then Jeremy and Mike uh, will get the demos and then put their parts on it, their vocals, et cetera. Um, so it's a really, really unique like writing style, but it's really cool to be able to collaborate with, you know, such a tight knit unit and folks that have been doing this on a professional level for such a long time. So it's really cool for somebody like me, even, you know, with Haste Today being a professional touring band, um, it's, it's really, really awesome to work with another very tight knit unit that's very organized about the methods of getting prepped for a tour, getting prepped for a studio and just like the the steps that it takes to get from point A to point B. Um, but yeah, man, it was, it was nerve wracking. Um, <laughs> can imagine. But, yeah. but after the fact, and, you know, after I was able to, you know, prove my abilities to them as well as relearn what it's like to be in a touring band. Right. Um, it was now I, I really couldn't picture doing it with anybody besides these guys. You know, it just feels like a, natural second nature now there was a little bit of push uh, a little bit of pushback at first just because i'm trying to relearn the dynamics of being in close quarters with these guys that i don't know all that personally well outside of like old acquaintances because i'm coming into their very tight-knit established unit with somebody who has like a lot of just homebody tendencies you know where these guys have never stopped working with a band i took a five-year break so i'm used to you know just hanging out in my apartment you know like raiding my refrigerator you know just like doing my thing so i very had to quickly relearn tour etiquette right um but they were they were very very forgiving crew um you know now like super super tight with these guys you know we even even still with quarantine and not being able to see each other all the time you know we're still in text threads on the regular and it's just it's awesome to still have that connection and have that family even though we're not all you know working together right now yeah man it sounds like obviously you know as you said you um slotted in really nicely there and uh yeah i want to talk a little bit about um the act obviously which was the the last record um that, that the guys put out and um yeah, so looking at that record, like uh, you know, just from a listener's standpoint, there's um, it kind of goes against some of the traditional metalcore aesthetics on some of the tracks, anyway. So there's kind of like you know, uh, kind of the spacier feel for some of the tracks, kind of more electronic stuff being introduced, which is cool. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts behind uh, like the process uh, of that recording, and then you know, how how is that compared to when you kind of first initially, um joined back in 2016 how how did that you know this the latest record uh come to um you? 
from what from what I know about the the pre-production process at least for from like John and Kyle's perspective it was honestly a gamble because they definitely wanted to stray away from what fans were expecting them to write because they didn't they knew for a fact that they had to adapt or perish you know this this you know the act could have very well been like the last record that they put out you know if it had flopped um, because they released it with solid with solid state, um, so releasing a totally stylistically different record on a new label, um, there were there were definitely a lot of uncertainties within the camp because nobody really knew how the record was going to do. But when John and Kyle were demoing out the songs and you know sending pre production stuff over to me to start working on drum parts, at first. I remember because I was working at a pizza shop here that's like at the end of my block when John started sending me the first uh, passes of like finished demos for pre-production to so start working on some drum stuff for. And I was just like, I was pretty puzzled at first because I was like, this sounds nothing like I thought it was going to sound like because I hadn't even heard any samples of anything that they were working on. Just randomly one day I get an email with some WeTransfer files for some pre-production songs that they had been working on. I'm like, this is very different. You know, I don't think it's that bad different, but I was a little puzzled at first. I'm like, this isn't heavy at all. I mean... I guess, but also part of that was because in my head, I had a preconceived notion of what heavy was at that time. Mm-hmm. And it was due to the clever songwriting of that camp, of the product camp for that record that very much changed my perspective on what heavy is, you know, because coming from, you know, Southern hardcore metal band to, you know, a old school metal core, Christian metal core band to five years off and just listening to whatever and playing whatever on my drum kit when I would put time into my drum kit. And then coming into Prada, where it's like, this is a metalcore band. Um, and I think the act for them, they wanted to break the mold and be like, you know, like we're older guys now. You know, we've lived long lives in the music industry. You know, we've put out the the heavy metalcore, you know, Brie, Brie, Brie records and that kind of stuff. And they, they did it well. You know, they were always on the front line of like that next trend in metalcore. And, you know, as a pal of theirs, it was a really cool thing to see. But as now, like, not a voting member of the band, but as, you know, a touring and recording member of the band, um, it was, for me, I was a little nervous. I'm like, you know, this record could be the nail in the coffin for them. But whenever we finally got together and, you know, they had all the songs selected for the record that were going to be on the record, and, you know, I got out of my own head and was like, look, my job is to come in here and play drums to the best of my ability to whatever degree that means. You know, I'm not here to make the executive decisions. I'm not here to say this is good or bad. I'm here to say, uh, how fast would you like this? And was that pass good? Um, and once we got into studio and we started tracking some of the stuff live and I felt the energy in that room, I'm like, dude, this record is going to fucking smash there were a lot of people that were very unsure about the record at first when we released it, you know, and it took some folks a couple passes, but funny enough, one of the most listened to songs from that record, the single chemical, like that is, that's an, I would call that an active rock song. 
I wouldn't call that metal at all. You know, I I think that genre is considered active rock. You know, I was just, I was listening to the record on, on Spotify the other day while I was driving because I hadn't listened to it in a while. And I was just like looking at like the top tracks and chemicals, the number one track on Spotify. And I'm just thinking to myself, that was the first song that I got for pre-production whenever they were working on the record. And that's why I was so puzzled because that was the first track I heard from the new product material that we were going to start working on. I'm like, that's a radio rock song. Like what's (laughs) the hell is that doing on a product record? But whenever they started, they started sending me the rest of the songs. I'm like, Oh, this is, this isn't just a collection of songs. This is an album. It takes people literally on a, on a journey. And then also like hearing the process after the fact, when we were in the studio of like how John and Kyle got to writing a lot of those songs together and started piecing that stuff together. I'm like, dude, this makes total sense now. Because for me, the only reason I was shocked is because I was totally flying blind. You know, just one day randomly, I started getting sent these tracks and I'm like, I don't really know what's going on right now. You know, I'm just getting all these songs and I'm like, is, are these things for a new record? Is this an EP? Like what's, what's, what's happening. But then sitting there, finally you know having drum parts for the record and starting to track them all I'm like dude like i cannot wait to hear this when it's all finished and then now listening to that record front to back i'm like this it felt it honestly fell right into the line but and naturally you know a lot of people were very surprised that we released that but then a lot once people listened to the record front to back and understood why those songs are on that record like okay this is a mature band who wanted to take the next step into their career and, and explore, you know, what else is out there. Yeah, that's it, man. I, that's, you said it exactly best taking the next step. And uh, yeah, I think history will judge that particular record as like kind of a watershed moment. Um, I think, yeah, you guys did a great job on that, on that album. And uh, I appreciate that, brother. I yeah, know. it's I know. Uh, it's really great. Um, so you, we've talked a little bit about, um, how you're kind of familiar with a few different instruments. You're kind of a multi-instrumentalist um, in that regard. You know, from my brief research, I, I recently read that you like kind of making hip hop beats and stuff at home as well. Yeah, and, I'm, uh, not, so you I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not nearly as good as John as far as production, but I'm learning. You know, you got <laughs> you got to sure, start like, somewhere. Yeah. So I just wondered, um, you know, given that you can play a few different things, is there do you approach those instruments differently creatively, like? Um, yeah. Is there, yeah. So I just wanted to get a little bit about, about that process, you know, um, how you approach them differently. Yeah. yeah. Well, for, for me, kind of like my, my curse is a lot of the stuff that I just write here at home, you know, sitting at my MIDI workstation kind of just ends up just buried on a hard drive somewhere. And then some <laughs> of the stuff I released, you know, this past May, I actually released kind of like a, a chill beats, like kind of lo-fi EP on Spotify. Um, uh, sorry, what, was that East Coast? Uh, what was the name? Yeah, of that? East Coast Beat, East Coast Beat, Beat Machine. Machine. Just uh, it, yeah. on on Spotify, it's just e dot c dot b dot m. Yeah, we'll give it a shout out so people and, uh, can find it. Because uh, right be, the beginnings of last year, my wife started listening to a lot of. Uh, she was just put on YouTube and put on like chill hop lo fi. Uh, beat, beats to study to, beats to while study to. while we were like you know either just cleaning the apartment or just if it's like a quiet morning and we just want some background music and I just really took a liking to that kind of just like slow bob your head just kind of instrumental grooves uh, and beginning of January tw- uh, 2020 my wife and I got to uh, uh, take vacation to Oslo Norway 
And that was, as somebody who's traveled the world for such a long time, that was my first time ever visiting this, uh, one of the Scandinavian countries, you know, for an extended stay. And when I came home, when we came home from that trip, I just felt, you know, rejuvenated and, you know, recharged even before tour or talk of the pandemic or any of that stuff was a thing. So I started writing just some like instrumental, you know, just like chill beat music, um, around like, and then quarantine happened. I think it was around, you know, late April, I started diving back into it. So I did, I released three songs there. Two of the songs are a bit longer. I think one's like eight minutes long. One's like six or seven minutes. The other one's just like three or four minutes. Um, but I just, I had like all these ideas for just like pretty music that you could easily put on in the background and listen to, or just have like a just like a quiet pulse behind you as you're just going through your day to day. And I kind of, I just wanted to release something like that. So with the help of uh, Eric Fain from BLKC records in Kansas city, uh, he's been a part of product camp for so many years. He's done merch for them. He's tech for them. Uh, he's one of the best dudes and he's still like a close, very close part of the Prada family. Um, he just runs like a small re independent record label where he just releases his friend's music and releases his stuff under BLKC records. And he helped me put it out on Spotify and, you know, Apple, Apple music, iTunes, all that stuff. Um, and it was really cool for me to just complete something of my own with the help from a close pal. Just like I wrote to start to finish and put it out. Um, but it, and in regards to your question of like approaching instruments differently, um, I do like a lot of the times I don't really have, when I sit down to, you know, like write, a beat or whatever, like in an electronic sense, I don't really have like a specific way to start. I'll just kind of start going through like synthesizer presets using some of like Arturia's plugins and see if there's like a specific sound I like. And sometimes that sound will like invoke an idea for a melody or, you know, like a pulsating uh, chord progression. And then I just kind of very slowly start adding layers and adding layers till I have something that's workable. Uh, and then with, with guitar, uh, lately I've been using guitar for just like main melodies or just like textural elements. So I'll throw like a crap ton of reverb and like a little bit of delay on it to just get kind of like a very atmospheric, you know, kind of, uh, like top line that hangs above like the, the whole track of whatever it is that I'm writing. Uh, and then I also have my, one of my buddies, uh, uh, Fender precision basses that sometimes I'll put like real bass on the track or, you know, I'll just use some bass synths and stuff to add just to the low end that it needs. Um, and then thank heavens for splice for finding some cool samples to just kind of chop, chop <laughs> yeah. and screw stuff in or find cool drum samples. Um, but yeah, it's every, every time I sit down to like write something, it always starts in a different way. I don't really have like a tried and true formula for like how I create something from scratch. It's just like whatever random idea I have, I'm like, Oop, got to get this out of my head right now. Let's go. Yeah. That's cool, man. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. Um, <laughs> so do you ever think about picking up anything like completely random in terms of instruments? Like, uh, do you ever think like, oh, I'll go out and like try the flute today or, you know, try like a saxophone actually, or something. Actually, actually, yes. You know, yeah. and honestly, the only thing that's really ever held me back is just like uh, space for one yeah. and and money. It's like, I'm, f I'm fascinated by, by bowed string instruments. Like I would die to learn how to properly play the cello or the viola. Uh, those two, those two are definitely up there for me for, for like the next mm. musical things I really want to try but I know that bowed instruments, like 
cello and viola and violin and the fiddle for that matter are all very expensive instruments and very <laughs> difficult very difficult to maintain um and take an yeah. exorb an exorbitant amount of practice and rehearsal to get even vaguely proficient on and i, I have a lot of close pals that are actually very accomplished string players and anytime i see you know because coming from a a, a gaelic background you know, like traditional Celtic music always had always fascinated me since I was a kid. Uh, my mom's mom's Irish, of course, so I do have I do have some ties to your side of the pond. Um, but I've always been a sucker for traditional Celtic music, and uh, like hearing a proper jig on a fiddle, ooh, does that tug on my heartstrings? Something wicked. Um, so I, I've always wanted to learn one of the the bowed string instruments. I've just never really had you know the time or the money to facilitate that because I know a procuring said instruments are expensive, and then you have to pay for lessons. Um, and I'm I'm I might have ADHD, and I might be 33, and still you know have quarantine times to deal with here, but not a whole lot of spare time to just randomly sprinkle an extra little uh, extracurricular activity in there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have said uh, cello because that's obviously, or, or, you know, violin because that's like obviously a pretty difficult thing to pick up. But yeah. Yeah. That's cool, man. You could get the uh, the double bass because you can play that finger style as well, man. That could like kind of jump you forward a few lessons maybe because you could be, do that. <laughs> that would be pretty sick. That would be yeah, pretty yeah. sick. <laughs> like the, what are those, yeah. those other ones called? The Chapman stick, I think they're called. Oh, yeah. Those are crazy. Yeah. Things are wacky. Who, Oh man, there's also one called like a harp hedgy, which is like um, it's like a guitar, like a kind of like a lap steel, but it, it kind of makes piano tones when you play it. So you kind what of play you, half string. Uh, what did you say it was called? Uh, harp hedgy, I believe. I think I'm saying that right. It's like H A R P E J I. I don't want to send you down this rabbit hole because you're going to want one because they're very. Uh, with, with two J's. With two J's, yeah, that's it. And it kind of looks like a just like a oh, game, but it's yeah, quite yeah. like a piano and a guitar. Um, but it oh, makes that's amazing, wild. amazing noises. Yeah, check out some check out some YouTube footage of that thing because um, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like a a more modernized version of an Appalachian dulcimer. Mm. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so here's a broad question that you might be loath to answer because there are so many possible answers. But if you could go back in time and uh, see any kind of gig or attend any kind of musical experience, uh, where would you go? Here it is. 18th, August 8th, 1977. Yep. Yep. August 8th, 9th and 10th, 1977. Lisner Auditorium in Washington, D.C. A band called Little Feet. Uh, they were a self-proclaimed swamp boogie. Okay. And any anybody from that era, or like that's that's like a, for me, it's like a mom and dad band, and it really is. It's like stuff you'd see a bunch of folks wearing tie dye and Birkenstocks, you know, grooving to and kind of a dirty field, you know, high on quaaludes or some shit. <laughs> but for me, that record. That was the f one of the first vinyls my mom ever gave me. And I'm not a vinyl head. I'm not a vinyl collector. You know, I don't have a proper turntable or a proper hi-fi system to listen to vinyl properly on. Um, I know that, like some of the guys in the, in the, in the product camp, you know, Mason and Mike, 
uh, and Kyle, like they have, you know, decent vinyl collections, you know, they really like pay attention to the details, you know, have good systems to play them on, et cetera. But this band, Little Feet, uh, and for me, it's just more of a sentimental thing. So growing up, you know, my mom's an art teacher um, and she always had a very eclectic taste in music, you know, cause her and my father are 15 years difference in age. My 50, my father's 15 years, my mother's senior. Um, so I got very, very broad, uh, diverse musical backgrounds from both sides, you know, from my dad, I got the golden oldies, you know, I got Motown, I got the Rat Pack, uh, Dean Martin, um, uh, Dion and the Belmonts, a lot of the doo-wop stuff that came from my dad. And then from my mom, I got, you know, CCR, CSNY, Genesis, Steely Dan, Ario Speedwagon, Little Feet, um, Renaissance, um, some Fleetwood Mac, you know, a lot of stuff of that era. Uh, and one of uh, the bands was Little Feet because I was perusing her record collection one day because I just saw like this stack of vinyl with like tattered edges of like the, the sleeves and stuff. And I'm like, Oh, there's going to be stories behind these records. And I pull out this record and I'm like, Oh, it's a double disc. Meanwhile, I'm like, I don't know what the fuck a double disc is. I was like 10 or 11 years old. So I start pushing buttons on her, my mom's hi-fi system and figure out how to put this vinyl on. I'll put this vinyl on and, uh, thankfully i had it on the right side <laughs> and the groove well the first thing that i noticed was that it's live record because you know you hear the audience you know chittering and chattering while the band's backstage so the band this band little feet they start playing or they start singing this acapella warm-up called join the band and then you know the guy that that part of the track ends at and they're doing this as they're walking out onto the stage and you you can hear the crowd starting to get louder and louder and louder and the dude introduces the band as you know was par for the chorus back in the 70s the guy comes out and introduces the headlining act and then the per, the percussion group the percussion side of the band the rhythm section they had a, an auxiliary percussionist and the drummer uh, Richie or Ricky Hayward was his name start off with this dirty, dirty, dirty groove, just like literally a proper freaking boogie. And I'm like, Ooh, that's a, that's a dirty ass groove. And it just stuck with me all these years. And you know, my, my mom and I still listen to this band because we would just be down at her art studio. I'd be helping her out with some art projects and such. And we would just be hanging out, you know, me and my mom hanging out and little feet was always in rotation of the playlist and that the energy of the room Lisner auditorium, 1977, it was, there was, they recorded this live record over three concerts over three days just to have that tight knit of a band that sounded like they were having so much damn fun on stage. It's just like, it's just a fun band. And it's just it's just groovy and it would have been really really cool to be a fly on the wall during that concert because it was because of the front man lowell george that i learned how to play a little bit of slide guitar just watching old videos that people would put up on youtube of him when he was still alive you know playing this song dixie chicken from that uh from that live record performance because it's got just this dirty dirty slide guitar lead on top of it so i gave i gave you kind of a long-winded story about it but that that's my that's my be all end all for a concert i'd want to see little that's, feet 
Lisner Auditorium in August of 1977. Nice, man. I don't think I've ever had such a a well-put-together answer to that question because um, it is is quite a long, winding (laughs) question to ask because, you know, you're asking, like, in an infinite world, who would you go and see? But, um, yeah, thanks for sharing that, man. That's... um, that's a very you know concise and yeah great answer cheers cheers brother <laughs> i like that yeah and that's one of those formative moments you know i think yeah sure, well yeah well because it was because of listening to to stuff like that from my mom's era that she would tell me stories about when she was you know my age you know what she was doing in college back in the day do you remember the band wild cherry uh the name rings a bell but i'm not play gonna... that fucking music oh, white boy yeah, for sure <laughs> I know that one. So they're apparently from, I think, like central Pennsylvania or like upstate Pennsylvania somewhere. And my mom went to went to art school up in northern Pennsylvania. And back when she was in college, they had these things called the Champagne Jam, where a bunch of the visual artists from the art school would do like live paintings and like sell artwork and T-shirts and stuff. And they'd have live music. And they called it a Champagne Jam because it was a five dollar entry and it was all you could drink champagne. So here's here you are in like the, the fucking seventies in a room full of artists and musicians just hanging out, drinking champagne, listening to bands play, and one of these champagne jams, Wild Cherry was the act playing. So that's the cool thing about like music music from that era for me. It's like it's kind of like a little uh, a tie back to where a lot of my personality comes from, you know, from my mom, you know, my dad, you know, from my dad, I get a little bit of the wisdom and a little bit of the Italian stubbornness. And then from (laughs) my mom, uh, a lot of creativity and just a big heart. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing that. That's cool, man. Um, We've got a a little bit of time. Uh, Just, you know, just a quick thing to say, uh, what have you kind of been listening to lately? Is there anything, uh, you know, anything new that you've caught up on that you want to share? Um, anything that's oh, yeah. kind of inspiring you right now? Yeah. Go oh ahead. yeah, actually. Um, well, I've been spending a lot of a, a UK band uh, called Loathe. Mm. Have you heard? Have you heard those guys yet? Uh, I have not. Yeah, L O A T H E. Some of them are Liverpool lads. Oh. Um, I think uh, one of the, one of them. Uh, one or two of them are are Welsh, uh, and I know one of them is of part Irish descent as well. So two winters ago, we had the pleasure of touring with them straight from the path and uh, Gideon uh, throughout UK as well as Europe. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of Loathe. And they released a record this past year called I Let It In and It Took Everything. And that record... Not only to me is it fucking groundbreaking, but watching these dudes perform it night after night, I think like there was one stretch of that tour where we had 21 shows back to back, zero days off. So we were all fucking grilled by the end of it. Night after night, they slayed the performance, man. And they're such awesome dudes. And that record, like if you, if you like heavy music, uh, that's, that record takes you on a fucking sonic journey. And I think that is probably one of the top releases of 2020 for sure for me. Um, not, and that's not a, even to blow smoke and sunshine up their rears because they're pals and mates, <laughs> but because like they earned, they earned that and that record's incredible. Um, 
So big props to the Loathe boys uh, for 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 that. And uh, honestly, still some close pals that I talk to this day, like my buddy Josh Singh, he was out uh, working with them on the tour. Uh, and he's a he's a Birmingham lad, and I love him to pieces. Uh, and he was he was um, kind of like their right hand man, as well as Zach, who were who works for Loathe. They were the right hand men who were taking care of a lot of the heavy lifting on that tour. Um, so big big shout out to those boys. So I I got a lot of love for for your country and and the people in it, man. Uh, a lot of good people. Loathe is a Loathe is a big artist uh, for me uh, that I've been spinning a lot lately. Um, I've also been diving into, uh, well, re- I guess revisiting um, a hip hop artist called Saba, S A B A. Uh, he's got a record um, that I think was released in 2019 or 2018. Let me look it up so I can give you the accurate name of the record first and foremost, so people can look it up if they like yeah. hip hop and whatnot. 2018. That record's called Care for Me. Uh, Saba S A B A is the artist. Spectacular front to back record. It's got a little bit of everything. Um, chill vibes. Um, some heavy re- some heavy songs on that on that record as far as hip hop goes. Listen, listen, revisit a lot of that. Uh, my the one guitarist for Prada, Kyle. He's been a very large uh, pusher of new music for me to listen to. Uh, he got me into uh, many artists over the past couple years. Uh, he's got a wonderful artist's ear for for hunting down well-made uh, new artists. Uh, one's called Arthur Moon, uh, and that's a project out of Brooklyn, New York. Um, look up Arthur Moon, and then I think the record is self-titled as the one in question. Yeah, that's the one, Arthur Moon. Um, yep, the record is the self self-titled. Yep, 2019 was released called Arthur Moon. Uh, spectacular. Um, it has such ethereal vibes to it. It's very, very atmospheric. Um, and I've never heard a more tasteful use of a vocoder. Probably, <laughs> probably fucking ever. Uh, the the person that fronts that band, I think, is a songwriting genius. Uh, and it has inspired me a lot because it's so outside of the box from how I would approach writing a song. So anytime I feel musically stuck and have a difficult time just formulating a musical thought, I'll put on something like like Arthur Moon or uh, another band, Y Oak. Uh, that's W-Y-E space O-A-K. They have a record called Shriek that I think I might be incorrect but from what, I, what Kyle was telling me about it was uh, she got like a bunch of vintage synthesizers for this record. And that record, it's kind of like if Stevie Nicks and uh, Florence from Florence and the Machine made a baby. <laughs> so a baby with pretty big lungs and pretty powerful yeah. voice, yeah. <laughs> her, vo- her voice is so hauntingly beautiful. Yeah. Um, and that record, Shriek, some of the grooves on it, dude, it's just, it's also a very well-crafted record because it has such a nice pulse because of a lot of the vintage synthesizers behind it that carry through a lot of the songs and just kind of tie a lot of the, the melodies and the, the ideas together. And that, that records, that's a massive one for me. Cause I remember in the early Prada days when I first jumped in with the band, um, 
I have a lot of fond memories of just driving around whenever that record came out and Kyle would be just bumping that in the van of it when we were just driving back and forth to like rehearsals and stuff. And I'm just like, dude, some of the grooves on this record are just so dirty. This is so cool. <laughs> and that's cool because it like gave me a new appreciation for like vintage synth sounds. Cause like, I don't have a background in like synthesis and knowing about synthesizers, you know, a lot of the stuff that I've learned about synth and like electronic stuff is largely because of just being in the same room as John from Prada. Cause like, he's got a bunch of, a bunch of different, you know, har- actual hardware synthesizers. And he's a, he's a very, a very quiet person until you ask him a question. And he's brilliant when it comes to, you know, knowing about synth stuff and, you know, MIDI mapping programming, anything that comes with like music production, anytime, like anytime I've had a question, I just text him and he's just got like, four answers ready to fire out so he's been he's been an awesome resource for me to just learn more about uh, music production and like proper recording techniques and stuff like that so very 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 blessed and fortunate uh to be in a band with a bunch of very well-rounded guys yeah excellent man all right well thanks for the recommendations and um more importantly thank you very much for your time uh today uh like this has been so enlightening so i just want to thank you for your um (laughs) your willingness to come on and, and kind of tell your story and do this. Um, yeah, I absolutely appreciate the opportunity, man. It's always a pleasure to, to meet a, meet a new fellow. That's uh, just, a, just as inspired by the music scene as much as I am, man. Yeah, for sure, man. And speaking of the, the, the music scene, hopefully, um, you know, we'll be back on track and you guys can get out and tour. We can see some shows and yep. get back fingers, to the UK. <laughs> fingers crossed, man. Fingers crossed. Lord knows I could use a good Vicky sponge in my life these days. <laughs> Is that a personal favorite? When you're, uh, uh, yeah. When yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just, there's just something about English culture to me that is just fascinating. There's and a lot of sugar in the baking. That. Yes. For, I mean, that I have, I have, you can ask any of the dudes in the product camp. I have a, an insane sweet tooth. Yeah. Like anytime we make, anytime we make a uh, petrol station stop, dude, I will just raid the, the sugar <laughs> aisle and give it all to me. I don't know. I don't know why. Since I was a kid, I've always just had a sweet tooth. How I'm not many pounds heavier is beyond <laughs> me, but I think maybe, Partly probably because, the drumming helps, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I was going to say, but just probably because it's drumming, I'm just burning calories quicker than I can consume them. Um, <laughs> I'm always like a little hummingbird, just like yeah. constantly moving. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's just, there's there's a lot, there's a lot about in- the English culture that I love and just a, a lot of, a lot of fond memories hanging with, with British pals. So, you know, I'm, I'm very excited to get back over there. Nice man, yeah. thanks. And just just briefly before we go, um, where can we kind of find you and follow you on the internet? Uh, uh, so on, yeah. yeah so uh, I'm on Twitter at Seppi uh, Cap. That's S E P P E C A P. I just rejoined like a week ago uh, at my my wife's behest. Um, <laughs> so my wife does some Twitch video game streaming. Oh yeah. Uh, and is a variety streamer. So her and a bunch of pals in her community play a bunch of different uh, PC and Nintendo Switch games. Uh, she has her weekly schedule. So she's like, you should get back on Twitter. It's good for networking and keeping in touch with people. I'm like, yeah, okay. I was never the best with words because sometimes ADHD and my thumbs can become a little too close. And I'm just like, oh, I'm going to type the most random shower thoughts out into the world and put my weird little quirks out there for people to see. But honesty and it's the best policy uh and then on instagram it's just uh giuseppe uh, at giuseppe dot a dot capolupo uh if you just go- google the spelling of my name because it's a long one 
Uh, it'll I will pop. link it. I will link yeah. it for everyone to see. So yeah, yeah, it'll definitely. it'll pop up in there. Yeah. yeah, I love I love chatting with new people and and people that just you know love to to ramble as much as I do because I can talk for hours and hours and hours. That's a, a blessing and a curse sometimes. But yeah, I love meeting new people and and hanging out and catching up. And if anybody has any questions that they might want to know more about literally feel free to, you know, uh, hit me with a direct message, you know, tag me in a comment or anything. Cause I'm more than happy to, to chat or answer any questions anybody might have. There you go. Everybody inbox Giuseppe. <laughs> You're going to have a Do lot, of, <laughs> a lot hey, of stuff got, to reply to. We got, we got a, we got a lot of spare time these days. So I figured yeah, why the heck not. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I just started working with a close pal of mine at a local vintage drum shop. Actually, uh, shameless self-promotion. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Shout uh, out. What is it? Hawthorne? Hawthorne drum shop. Yeah. Um, he has a, a really big online presence in uh, selling refurbished uh, vintage drums and just really cool, unique, uh, unique finds and stuff. But he just opened for in-store retail this past week. Uh, so I've been uh, lucky enough for him to hire me to help him out with, you know, his in-shop presence, you know, uh, upkeeping in the shop, um, you know, lo- the logistics of like shipping, you know, keeping the shop clean, et cetera, et cetera. Making a lot of demo videos of all these beautiful drums that I get to play every day now. Yeah. Like it's it's a dream come true oh that's cool i love stuff like that like uh, you know like music trucks now have their own like accompanying youtube thing is that just, is that on youtube as well hawthorne drum? yeah hawthorne yeah drum hawthorne drum shop, yeah. shop so. so we can check you out doing demos over there as well right yeah playing some yeah beautiful beautiful stuff i got to play a a, a nickel over brass uh ludwig snare from the 1920s yesterday oh, wow. that was that was a, that was a highlight for me man i was just <laughs> like Oh, this holy grail of a drum is sitting right here in between my legs and I get to play it even though I can't afford to buy this drum. <laughs> <laughs> Was he like, don't beat it up too hard. You have yeah, to like, like, go a bit gentle I'm gonna be, on that one. I'm going to be, I'm going to be gentle, yeah. <laughs> but firm. Yeah. <laughs> like command respect, but be kind. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it sounds incredible. Oh man. Yeah. A bunch of the demos are up on, on his uh, Instagram as well at Hawthorne drum shop. So if you want to see what I'm up to outside of tour life, whenever I'm home here, just go check out Hawthorne Drum Shop. You'll see me making a, a drum demo videos for this my wonderful pal Chris and all these incredible drums that that uh, he's been very lucky to find and keep in shop. All right, man. Well, yeah, I will let you get on with your day because we're getting to that point now. Um, yeah, just just you know, stay safe in the rest of this lockdown, man, and. Yeah, just just keep on keeping on, and yeah, I really hope to uh, see everyone in the music community back to touring. Dude, abs- yeah. absolutely, mate. Next time on, I'm on your side of the pond, man. We'll definitely have to link up for a pint. What uh, what city are you in? Oh, for sure, man. Oh, I'm Birmingham. Birmingham yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Birmingham. Yeah. Get in, get in, boys. We're going to the fucking garrison. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I literally have a Peaky Blinders tattoo. Yeah, I was gonna say, man, you're sporting the facial hair of that. Oh you know, uh, yeah, well. yeah. Arthur Arthur Shelby is my homeboy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Yes, that would be awesome. Um, but yeah, all the best, dude. Take care. Um, hey, cheers, man. I appreciate your time. Uh, cheers, I wish man. you a wonderful, healthy, happy, and fortuitous new year. And I definitely look forward to crossing paths soon. But thanks again for having me on here, man. I really Same appreciate you, it. Sir. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. Cheers, brother. Bye, bye.